podcast should be for listeners that are 18 years of older as each episode may contain strong adult language and descriptions of acts of violence or of a sexual nature that were told to me by the victims of the crimes or the criminals who perpetrated the crimes against the victim Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. Before we get started today, I'm going to give some more shout-outs, y'all, to the fans and our moderators and administrators, or what I call the dream team of our private page or group on Facebook. I want to thank you all, especially our patron members who have been so awesome, and this week they'll be receiving... The, the first mini episode which is available to tier 2 members and the first bonus episode which is uh, available to tier 3 members so we've been working hard on that and getting it out and also our merchandise is in the store our first shirts came in and we have coffee mugs and vehicle stickers and bumper stickers and magnets all that good stuff and we'll have more designs and colors on the shirts in later this week i just want to say thank you and i'm due to give a couple more shout outs for patron our newest patron members one of which is miss rachel franzen who's one of our longtime fans and she's actually the fan who started our private group on facebook thank you rachel you're awesome rachel's given me a lot of advice y'all and help she's a big true crime fan and now a patron supporter, and we appreciate you, Rachel. Miss Jackie Montgomery is our new patron member, and we appreciate you, Miss Jackie. You're awesome. Thank you for the support. We, we appreciate it. And Miss Melanie Shepard. Miss Melanie, thank you for becoming a patron member. We are tier three. We appreciate it. You're awesome, and, and I love you. And Miss Sam Cross is also a tier three member and Ms. Sam really appreciate you and y'all Ms. Sam has also been uh, instrumental and valuable uh, to me giving me some advice and uh, messaging with me on things she is a big true crime fan also and she even tells me she'll be in New Orleans for Crime Con and y'all know that real life real crime will be there we'll be at Crime Con in New Orleans, and we'll have a booth set up. We won't be on Podcasters Row, but we will have a booth set up. Um, We'll we'll have merchandise, and I'll be there to do meet and greets and what have you. And any of our fans that show up, we're going to have a dinner or go out and take you to some of the local places, not tourist traps. Take you out and maybe wine you and dine you. And Miss Carrie Stokes, Miss Carrie, thank you for becoming a patron member, and we appreciate it. And uh, Miss Brandy Elliott, we appreciate you. Thank you, Miss Brandy. And Miss Brandy has messaged several times with good information, and we really, really appreciate it. So, everyone else, 
all our other patron members that I've given the shout outs to before. We appreciate you so much. And I'm so very thankful, y'all. We've reached 18,000 downloads now. And it's just amazing. We're in 55 countries. Some of them I've never even heard of. One day I'll do a list of them because it's really amazing. 55 countries across the world that people are listening to real life, real crime, the podcast. So, but we couldn't do it without y'all, y'all sharing and telling other people about us. And, and I love it. I get to watch the numbers grow daily and I'm like a crackhead check, <laughs> checking the stats. It's so awesome to see. And I get so excited and y'all motivate me to really do it. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you don't send me a message, I'm always up for constructive criticism, but I appreciate everything. Love you to death. So with that being said, we're going to begin today's episode, which is entitled Overkill. On April 21st, 2005, I was working as a detective for the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office, and I was on the night shift. Now, the night shift during the week consisted of two detectives who would come in at 1 o'clock, and you would get off at six o'clock the next morning and then the day shift would pick it up so i love working a night shift that's why all the action was it only happened once a month it was one week a month that we covered it and i never minded it that's when all the blood generally when all the blood hits the ground and the bodies drop and stuff like that right so i was working it and generally my partner and i would split it up like he would cover anything from like one to six and then go 10-7 or off-duty around 7 p.m., and then I would cover it from 7 to 6 in the morning. And, and if anything major happened, we would call each other out, like, you know, like a homicide or whatever. But it had to be pretty major. I mean, if, if I was going to call them out in the middle of the night, then it would have to be pretty much a homicide or who done it on something. But this night, about... I guess about 2 o'clock in the morning, I got a call from dispatch, actually a page from dispatch, and I called in, and they said, hey, you have a victim at North Oaks Hospital in Hammond, Louisiana, which is one of the towns that's in one parish over in the opposite direction from Baton Rouge uh, in Tangipahoa Parish. And at the time, Livingston Parish didn't have a hospital, and now they have several. But the we would either have to go to our emergency victims at the hospitals in Baton Rouge, emergency rooms in Baton Rouge, or generally the anything that happened on the east side of the parish, they would transport them to the closest hospital, which was North Oaks in Hammond, Louisiana. So they said, you've got a victim in the emergency room at North Oaks who was beat, savagely beat, with a beer bottle, and he's all messed up, and you need to get over there. So I went... And I'm not going to say the guy's name because he was married at the time, and you'll understand why in a minute. But so I get there, I go to the ER. They knew who I was. I'd been over there enough times for the night shift. Uh, so I badged my way in, and, and I said, hey, I'm here to see my victim of the beating. They said, yeah, well, they're working on him right now in the room. You can go in. And so I go into the room, and there's a doctor and, uh, and some nurses and this white male probably 40 years old is on the table and he is beat to shit and his face is 
all messed up, right? They split. I mean, you could see skull. They were stitching him up. You could see skull, and there was blood everywhere. As you know, or maybe you don't know, head wounds bleed more than anything. Even a small cut to the head bleeds more than anywhere, generally more than anywhere else on the body unless you hit an artery. This guy, <laughs> he looked rough, right? but he was awake. And he was moaning, et cetera, and, and I waited. Once they got done, stitched him up, and they were going to take him for a CAT scan and all that and, they, and X-rays and, and what have you. But while they were waiting to do that or have somebody come to get him, I introduced myself. I said, hey, I'm Detective Overton with the Sheriff's Office. Can you tell me what happened tonight? He said, man, I was at the Canal Bank Club. Now, y'all, the Canal Bank Club is another one of those old-time swamp bars, but it's been a swamp bar before the area where it's located became full of millionaires, okay? It sits on the Diversion Canal right at the foot of the bridge that, that crosses in between Livingston Parish and Ascension Parish, and the Diversion Canal is a long, wide man-made canal it's probably i don't know 10 or 15 miles long that runs from where it ties into the Amit river down to the blind river and what it was built for was when the overflow from floodwaters come down the Amit river instead of flooding everything down here the diversion would help divert the water away from the Amit river to the blind river which would get it quicker to lake marpaw and help alleviate some of the flooding. Anyway, so what happened when they built this long, straight canal was eventually people came in and bought bought it up, and it's probably the, some of the most expensive homes in Livingston Parish. So like a small quarter-acre lot sells for $250,000. They're all million-dollar homes. Coincidentally, the original owner of Popeye's Fried Chicken from the Christopher Pell story that owned all the Popeyes, Al Copeland even had a summer home there because it's made for big boats and get to the lake really fast, Lake Marlpaul. But there's a lot of bars on the water, and the canal bank was there before the Diversion Canal was made famous. And it also has a boat launch next door to it and a huge gravel parking lot where people park the trucks and trailers where they launched their boats, but it's an old-time bar. It's not a young crowd or anything like that, not even a big crowd, but it's a mainstay. It's been there forever, longer than I've been in Livingston Parish. So anyway, he says he was at Canal Bank. I think it was a Thursday night, and he said, man, I was sitting at the bar drinking. He said there were only three other guys in the bar. It was dead. It was quiet. There was nothing going on. And he said around 11 o'clock, the door opens, and this beautiful little blonde lady walks in. He said, I'm talking about she was just smoking hot. And everybody turns and looks at her. And she walks in, and she looks around, and she looks at all the guys sitting at the bar. And then she looked at him. They made eye contact. And he said, she came straight up to me, and she didn't say a word. She got crawled up on my lap and started French kissing me. He said she was all over me. She was, like, attacking me. And I was like, man, I hit the lotto, right? This girl's super hot. And there wasn't another female in the bar. 
and she's just crawling all over me and making out with me. He said, so we were making out and we had a couple of drinks and she just kept kissing me and was filling me up and I was filling her up. Then the bar closes. They did last call and, and everybody left. The other guys left. And then they were the last two to, to go out. And he said, when we got outside, she said, I have my golf cart here. Let's sit on the golf cart and drink some beer. And he was like, why, why do you have a golf cart here? And she said, well, I live over on the island and you can only get the access to the island by golf cart. Now that is on the opposite side of the diversion canal of the first I don't know, a mile or two, a couple miles on that side is still considered Livingston Parish. And the you take the road to the left. As soon as you go across the bridge into what becomes Ascension, you take the first road to the left or to the right, and that's that road that runs along the diversion and the houses are all considered Livingston Parish. So if you take a left, you follow that straight road past all these million-dollar homes and the dead ends where there's a little store, and then there's a bridge that goes over onto the island, which has smaller homes, but almost all of them were $200,000 or whatever. They were like two bedrooms with basically kind of like camps on the water. But there were a few that were there from like 20 plus years ago that were old. Uh, maybe th- I think there were three of them that were in the old style. But anyway, she told the guy that she came from her house on the island. And he said, so they're on the cart. And they're making out, and let me describe the canal bank to you real quick. It's a big, old, red building, and it's raised up because the water comes up a lot, right? And that parking lot floods it on a regular basis because of the boat launch. So it's probably raised up four feet, and they have lattice work. They had, they had white lattice work that covered underneath the port so you couldn't see underneath the building. And he said the golf cart was parked in front of the lattice work and that's where they were making out and he said they were really getting into it i mean pretty much having sex with their clothes on and all of a sudden she stopped and he said she looked up at him she had blue eyes blue screen eyes and she started crying and then she started sobbing and he said honey what's wrong and she said my husband died and he said oh i'm so sorry He said, when did that happen? I'm so sorry for your loss. She said, it happened tonight, motherfucker. And then she took the the beer bottle she was drinking with and just beat the shit out of him. And he said, man, she started hitting me, and I don't know if I blacked out or whatever. She hit me four or five times. He said, and I was sitting in the driver's seat of the golf cart. My foot hit the gas, and I drove through the lattice work and smashed the golf cart underneath the canal bank. I was like, holy shit. And, and so I said, dude, do you have any idea who she is? He said, no. And he said, but I'm telling you, you'll know her when you see her. If you give me a picture, because she's smoking hot, beautiful. So at this time, we have what we call an aggravated second-degree battery. In the state of Louisiana, there is no attempted murder. Aggravated second-degree battery is the same thing as attempted murder. And, okay, Louisiana is under the Napoleonic Code of Law, where the rest of the United States, a battery is is when you threaten someone. An assault is where you actually do the physical harm. In Louisiana, it's reversed. In Louisiana, a battery is where you do the physical harm or the unwanted touching. And the assault is where you threaten someone. 
but aggravated second degree, what made it aggravated battery is that she used a beer bottle. What made it second degree battery is if you lose consciousness from the beating or you have to seek medical attention or you receive some type of disfigurement from the beating. So you can have... You can have a second-degree battery where you lose consciousness or have to seek medical attention or receive disfigurement, or you can have the aggravated second-degree battery, which is all of them, right? And this guy had all of it. He obviously was going to have a lot of scars. He obviously was in the hospital. He knew if he was going to have to have brain surgery. Hell, we didn't know if he was going to live. You don't know that until they come back and say if his brain's swelling or his skull is fractured or whatever. But I can tell you, he took a beating. So I took his information. I didn't call my partner out on it because I didn't have a suspect, but I went to the canal bank and it's probably 30 minutes away and I pull up and sure enough, their golf cart is just busted through the lattice work, jammed underneath canal bank bars, porch, and there was blood everywhere. So I recovered the broken beer bottle for DNA evidence, fingerprints, et cetera, and photographed it and took samples and called a tow truck and had it towed out. And that's it. At the end of my shift, I went home. I, you know, I filed the report, and I was going to check on the guy status when I woke up that evening and went 10-8 or back on duty. Let me clarify just a little bit. I mean, I didn't just go home and not work the case, but I talked to the doctor before I left, and he said, that I think he's going to live. And I think it's more cosmetic probably than anything, but they were going to observe him for brain swelling or what have you. And he said they wouldn't know anything for several hours anyway. So it's not like I had anything to go on, right? I didn't know who was in the canal bank at the time. It's 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning. Everything down there is closed. There was no way to get onto the island to find out which house this girl allegedly said she came from, if she even came from there, although the golf cart, really was a big tip. I mean, that's, I know they use golf carts exclusively on that side of the river on the island. So it wasn't like I didn't care. It's just that there was nothing I could do at that time. Now I made the day shift aware and I made uh, Stan Carpenter, who was the chief of detectives at the time, aware of the situation told him I'd be on it whenever I got up and we went back 10, eight that afternoon. So I came out early. I woke up and got with my partner, uh, was Detective Brad True, and, and Brad was a newer detective. He was very, very sharp, though. We had worked together in uniform patrol and then on the special response team before I got off of that because of my detective duties, and just a great guy, super smart, and pleasure to work with. So Brad and I go to—the canal bank didn't even open, right, until, like, I think 2 o'clock, but— so we, we get together, and we go down there, and I looked at it again, took pictures of the damage of everything during the daylight, and I talked to the person that was there at the canal bank, the manager, and the bartender that was working there that night before wasn't even in yet. I called them, and we were, we were going to go talk to the bartender when there was a call over the radio of a 10-7 in River Highlands, which is the island where the golf carts are. And they already had units on scene, uniform patrol on scene. So we headed that away. And then Stan Carpenter called and said, y'all just sit tight and let's, we'll see how, what, you know, what's going on. We, we don't know anything yet. And we already have, whoever the, the day detective was, was 
was real close by, even closer than us. And they got on scene. And so we, we just continued to look at the canal bank. And then we were en route to go talk to the bartender. And then it, then we got the call back that it was a 10-7. It was a dead body in one of the cabins on the island. And they said that it had been stabbed numerous times, many, many times. And what happened was the victim, it was a white male, the victim's brother hadn't heard from him all day, so he went to check on him at his cabin slash camp, whatever you want to call it, and found the victim in the bed with the covers pulled up on him, up like to his neck. And it was obvious to the brother that the victim's coloration was off and then he pulled the covers back and he was just able to see that he'd been stabbed many many times he, of course the brother freaked out and called 911 and they, they responded so the it was a little bit of a logistics deal right getting onto the island it's not like you could drive your unit back there and or get the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab big bus back there so this one was going to take a little bit longer to work than others but then when I called Stan I said hey man you remember what I told you about aggravated second degree battery victim we had at the hospital he said yeah and I said the girl that did it was on a golf cart said she came from the island and that her husband had died that night and he was like well it's obvious it's going to be connected so we're going to start working it up so we called everybody out and got together at what then of course the coroner had to come the state police crime lab had to come and process the scene again we at the time we didn't have our own crime scene unit and the victim was identified as russell perry and that was the man that was found in his bed covered up by his brother and the detectives on the scene interviewed the brother and asked him who he thought it could be etc and the brother stated that Perry had been living with Rhonda Lambert, and he described her as a small, five-foot, nothing-inch, petite blonde with blue eyes, and he said they had been living together and she wasn't there. So they called us with that information, and we called the radio room and had them run her. Or she's supposed to be from Mississippi also. He didn't know where in Mississippi, but we ran her. And she came back with an NCIC or the National Crime Information Computer hit out for probation and parole out of the state of Mississippi. And it said, the bottom of the paper said, warning, if you come into contact with the suspect, she can be very violent. Now, that's kind of unusual to have that. And I've run thousands of names, right? But very seldom do you see that specific warning. So... By the time they got done working the crime scene and everything, we all met up and all the detectives and Stan Carpenter, the chief. And then we had already printed up photos of Rhonda Lambert and we were getting a game plan together. Basically, we decided it was a Friday night and we knew all the local bars would be active. Now, and we decided to go cruise the local bars not only looking for her but to talk to people and see if anybody had witnessed her because when she left canal bank she left on foot and it's obvious that somebody picked her up and i mean there's nowhere to go right i mean she, it was a long ways to the island from canal bank and she didn't go back there we know that so there's two things my mom always said you never have to go far to find in south louisiana and that's a bar and a church and that's the truth right so we hit all the swamp bars 
and we were going from bar to bar showing pictures of Rhonda Lambert. And we went into one of them, the dock, and one of the guys at the bar showed us, said, hey, I'm Detective Overton. We're looking for this lady have you ever seen him before he said hell yeah i saw her last night he said man i was at the canal bank club and i was sitting there getting my drink on and there's no girls in the place and this super fine girl walks in and she looks all around and then she made a beeline for this guy at the bar and just got on top of him and attacked him he said she was just sticking her tongue down his throat and just rubbing his crotch and going all over him and he said man she, i was I thought, man, I sure would like to have me some of that monkey. And I told him, I said, no, no, sir, you wouldn't like to have any of that. And then she's a suspect in a a murder and another, you know, attempted murder, if you will. But we didn't find her. But what we did do is Brad and I had a, Brad Trull and I had a six-pack made with Rhonda Lambert's photo in it. And a six-pack, y'all, is just like you see in the movies. It puts a photo lineup. And the Louisiana State Police computer program that they use now is amazing. They pick out, they run the known photo of the suspect, and they put it into in with five other photographs. But the computer picks the other five photographs based off of facial recognition software. And I'm telling you, some of them, I know who the bad guy is. And these pictures that they pick out are so close, it's almost impossible to tell. Towards the end of the night shift, when we got the six-pack, we went to the hospital, North Oaks, and showed it to the guy that she'd beat at Canal Bank. And when we showed it to him, he immediately picked her out of the lineup. And you show him the lineup. So before you give it to him, you say, hey, look, I'm going to show you a lineup. The person that did the crime against you may or may not be in the lineup, and I don't want you to guess at anything. I only want you to say, if you recognize the person, I only want you to say it if you're for sure and so sure that you would be able to get on the stand in a court of law and swear on the oath that this is the person that did it to you. Well, we showed it to him. Immediately, he picked her out. And he said, no, this is her. This is her. I'll never forget it. This is her. So based off that information, we had a warrant for aggravated second-degree battery drawn up for Rhonda Lambert's arrest. Actually, I'm sure, I can't remember exactly, but I'm sure we probably called Tina Stafford, our secretary, out. She would come out on any big case in the middle of the night. She was the world's best at typing up warrants and wording them right and everything else. And then we had to bring it to a judge and get it signed. So we'd have something, if we found her, that we could arrest her and then detain her. And the, the detectives could question her about the homicide. So we got the warrant signed, and then the next day comes along, and it's the weekend, and so we're following different leads and stuff, and nothing's panning out, but Brad and I are back on duty. The night shift, the not, when you're on the night shift, when the weekend comes, everybody else is off, and you and your partner split it. One of you takes the day part, and one of you takes the night, unless something like this happened. So we were working together, and I told Brad, I said, you know what? Somebody picked her up, right? And she had to leave on foot. There's nowhere to go. It's swamp, except for the big homes all up and down the Diversion Canal on the side of the river where the canal bank was and immediately across the bridge there's a straight street that runs to the left back to where the island is where she well somebody killed Mr. Perry and you take it to the right again it still lives in Paris that one street and it's homes that lie in the water I said let's go over there and just do some good old-fashioned police work and knock on doors and see if somebody saw her that night walking or may have picked her up etc also we wanted to look and see 
if they had any cameras that covered the canal bank parking lot maybe we could get some actual video of the aggravated second degree battery a lot of the homes on the water down there have cameras where they can watch the waterway for some for security reasons some i guess to watch the boats go by or whatever sometimes the burglaries of those homes would occur by people pulling up in boat when they knew the people weren't home and they would go in from the riverside i mean from the diversion canal side and do the burglary where people would most of the time, leave the doors open. So we went over there for twofold. Knock on doors, see if anyone's seen her, and also look at the area for cameras directly across and diagonally across from the canal bank, just trying to get lucky, basically. And we go on door to door, and we come to about, I don't know, seven or eight houses down and kind of diagonally across from canal bank. And we were talking, everybody else was shown the flyer to if you will the picture of Rhonda rose lambert nobody had seen her and we get to this one house and it's a big house beautiful home and there's a white a new white f-150 truck um, and it had a business a construction company name on it and we knocked on the door and a guy comes to the door and he immediately set off my spidey senses if you will um, when he opened the door and he saw us he like put himself in the doorway and kind of pulled the door to him where like you couldn't see in behind him. And you know, 98.5% of what I did for a living back then was read people and still today with the polygraphs, et cetera. And the, I have hundreds of thousands of hours of interview and interrogation. And I'm at the point where I don't even need the polygraph instrument anymore. Anyway, we introduced ourselves. Hey, I'm Detective Overton. We're, we're working on a case. Uh, we're looking for this lady. And, and I showed him the picture, and he didn't look at it for a quarter of a second. And he handed it back to me and said, never seen her. And I was like, okay, here we go. And, and Brad, I knew he was thinking the same thing, right? And so I told him, I said, well, do you you live here alone? Is there anybody else that we could ask? They've seen her. He said, no, I'm going through a divorce, and I live here by myself. Okay. I said, so there's nobody inside of your residence, right? And, and he said, no, there's nobody inside. And he said, why would you say that? I said, because, I mean, you're, like, standing in the doorway like you think we're going to sack your house or something, right? And I don't have a SWAT team behind me. And then he, was, he realized he was being defensive, and he kind of stood back a little bit. And I said, you know, are you sure you haven't seen this girl before he said i've never seen her before in my life and i said well let me tell you something i said i'm gonna advise you your miranda rights i said you have the right to remain silent anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law you have a right to an attorney prior to and during question you can't afford one a quarter point one for you i said you understand your rights he said but i'm under arrest i said certainly not i said i, I just want to advise you your miranda rights before i talk to you any further because now i'm going to question ask you a couple questions and if you lie to me we're going to have an issue. I said, I'm going to ask you one more time. Have you ever seen this girl? He said, he said, no, 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 I haven't seen her. I said, so you didn't run across her Thursday night late, maybe walking down the road or something. He said, no, no, no. I said, were you here Thursday night at your residence? He said, I was here all night. I, I said, you never left. He said, nope. I came in from work and never left, uh, et cetera. I said, sir, this is a homicide investigation and an attempted murder investigation i said if you have knowledge of her you're not going to get in trouble I, I know that you didn't help her committing the first two crimes i said but it, it seems like you're you're being really defensive and you and i just get the feeling that you're not telling me the truth he said well i'm not talking to you anymore and i haven't never seen her i said all right and he pretty much slammed the door in her face and so I knocked on the door again. He said, what do you want? And I said, I just want to tell you 
if I, you see me again, I said, you have two choices. You should either take off running or immediately turn around and put your hands behind your back. He said, what are you talking about? I said, because if you see me again, I'm going to have a warrant for your arrest for obstruction of justice for lying to me. He said, I'm not lying to you. I said, I believe you are, and I know that you know you are. I said, but if I come back, I'll have evidence and I'll have proof of it. And he slammed the door on me. So I looked at Brad. I said, look, dude, we got something here. We got to figure out what it is. And Brad said, let's check the houses across the street and see if they have any cameras. And we got lucky, man. The one directly across the street, his house, this guy's house, was on the diversion canal face. The house that we found the cameras on was across from his on the swamp side, not the diversion canal side. And it had cameras, and they were facing the street, and they're facing this guy's house. Clear as day, but there was nobody home. So we left a card, and we went on, knocked on more doors, looking for cameras and everything. And coming to find out about... A couple hours later, we get a call from the homeowner that lived across the street from the guy. So Brad and I go back to his house and we tell him, hey, look, we're working a homicide and we see you have cameras. And we we know the girl that did the homicide left on foot and she may have come down your street that night. I said, do you mind if we look at your cameras to see if, uh, if, if your camera's working to see if we can see anything? I said, we'll fast forward through. It won't take that long. And he said, sure, come on in. You know, it was a real nice guy, real nice home. And we go in and play in back his camera system. And we went to Brad because he was the more technical, technical savvy, younger than me and with computers and stuff. But it, we, he fast forwarded to the guy's, the camera that was covering the guy's house. That's the one we were watching, right? And the guy gets home from work at like, 6 30 in the evening and then guess what he leaves like at eight something uh, so we know his first lie was that he was home all night and then he was gone for a long time and then about like, like 2 30 a.m in the morning the, his truck pulls back in and he gets out and a short person you couldn't know it, it wasn't the lighting wasn't great, but you could tell a short person got out of the passenger seat and they went inside his house. Lie number two, right? He said that there was nobody, hadn't been anybody at the house, and he'd stayed there by himself. He'd been home all night alone. And so fast forward to, it was actually that morning before we knocked on his door, and guess what? He comes out of the house, and who comes out with him? Rhonda Lambert. And they get in his truck, and they leave. So right then and there, we split and go cut a warrant for his arrest for obstruction of justice. And we go back to get him, and he's not there. So Brad remembered the company name. It was a, a located in Ascension Parish, and we went to the work yard. It was like a piping company or something like that, something to do with the oil refinery industry. And we went there, and sure enough, the truck was there. And when we walked up, he was in, like, the fab shop area where they're fabricating pipe. And he turned around, and he saw me, and his eyes just got bigger than, you know, the deer in the headlights. And I told him, I said, turn around, cuz. Put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. And he was like, what, what? And Brad grabbed one side of him, and I grabbed the other one, and we took him into custody and arrested him for obstruction of justice and advised him of his Miranda rights again in we had to take him in and first book him into the Ascension Parish Jail down in Donaldsonville, which is 
it's a long ways away down across the river because he was in their parish and then we had to wait and process him through and then take him back to Livingston Parish to book him in but we questioned him and questioned him I said listen man in the interview I said listen why'd you lie to us and he said what he said well he said I was coming back from a bar and I was crossing the bridge and I saw her walking back from the Livingston Parish side towards the Ascension Parish side and he said I mean she weighed me down and he said she was a good looking girl so I stopped and he said we went to my house and uh, she said that she needed a ride into and, and Mississippi and he said look I'm not going to Mississippi and she said well I need a place to stay for tonight and he said okay well you can stay at my house there's nobody there and she said it's fine he said and they got to the house and she jumped on him but physically in a sexual manner right he started kissing him and rubbing him and he said and then we had sex and he said then the next morning i saw about the murder uh, on the island and I, t- and I realized it was her and he said i told her you got to get the hell out of my house and then she was like no you, you got to take me to mississippi and he said i'm not taking you to mississippi and, and she called someone in mississippi he said and they agreed to meet in Hammond. And she said, you take me to Hammond or I'm going to raise hell. And so to, to get rid of her, he said he, he drove her to a gas station in Hammond and dropped her off. So anyway, we booked him in on obstruction of justice charge. And anytime there's a major crime, that someone does a major crime, they go on the run. It's been my experience through the years, and you'll hear it time and time again in future episodes. When they go on the run, they when they run out of money or their luck runs out, they always go back to a place that's safe to them. And for Rhonda Lambert, that was Brookhaven, Mississippi. And that's where her family was from, et cetera. So we had entered the arrest warrant for Rhonda Lambert in the NCIC computer and we called Brookhaven Police Department or the lead detective on the case called Brookhaven Police Department and they kind of a small town and guess what that it so happens the chief of police was friends with the Lambert family and known them his whole entire life as as is a case in most small towns and he agreed to go talk to the family and see what he could find out. In the meantime, we we continued to look for cameras and talk to people. And one of the places Brad and I went was there was a hair salon right at the end of the road. When if you again if you crossing from the canal bank that crossing over the Diversion Canal Bridge headed towards Ascension Parish you can take the left to go to that long straight road that goes back to the island where it's golf carts only as soon as you make that left there is a hair salon there and we stopped in and talked to the ladies in the hair salon and the lady said yeah yeah we know Rhonda she comes in here and gets her hair done matter of fact she just got it done on Thursday and she said I think her husband is a very controlling person. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, she, when, every time she comes to get her hair done or to tan, it was a tan and salon also, she said when Rhonda gets here, she has to call him and tell him that she has arrived, and every time before she leaves, she has to call him and say, okay, I'm leaving now. She said, I just thought that was always strange. And she said she couldn't prove it, but she thought she saw signs of bruising on Rhonda Lambert, et cetera, from time to time. But 
she couldn't be positive. She said she just had a bad feeling about her boyfriend or husband or whatever he was. So at this point, it's, it's kind of a waiting game. Of course, we're still looking. We're beating the bushes. We're doing the cop work, the grunt work. And we we know, though, that she's gone to Mississippi, but we're looking for any type of witnesses or either one of the crimes. And this, it was kind of at a standstill. We're waiting to hear back from the uh, chief of police in Mississippi, put out a bolo or be on the lookout for her and the warrant nationwide that she was wanted. And again, this one we had to put should be considered extremely violent. And the autopsy was scheduled for Mr. Perry and where the detectives that first arrived on the scene had to go to the autopsy. And I'm going to stop there for this week. And because there's so much more y'all that I have to share on this episode about Rhonda Lambert in next week's episode we will conclude overkill and I'll tell you what happened for everything from the autopsy to the investigation to the manhunt to the trial and what happens after that really really interesting stuff and we'll hope you tune in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And I'm Woody Overton, your host. And we appreciate each and every one of you. And thank you so much. Goodbye. Call it make me me